Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 174. Today, it's going to be me talking about the impact of AI on jobs. And this was prompted by the finishing thoughts of last week when I was getting on to the Hollywood writers' strike and the end of that phase of the strikes in Hollywood. I realized I had so much saved up, pent up about this topic that it was time to get it out. Even so, in the scope of the 35, 40 minutes or so that we will have for this episode, only going to scratch the surface, of course, of something as intense as that. But let's see if we can relieve a little bit of the pressure. So to start with the current news, the Hollywood writers' strike is over. The writers were victorious, got nearly everything they asked for. That pertained to a number of subjects, and the one that interests us is in regards to artificial intelligence. And the agreements that they came to with respect to that are that AI shall not write nor be credited for literary material. And additionally, material created by artificial intelligence shall not take credit or copyright from screenwriters. Screenwriters can use artificial intelligence when providing writing services, but only with the consent of the production partners, and they cannot be compelled to use it. Studios must disclose to writers if AI-generated material is used, and using scripts by writers to train AI is prohibited. Now, because AI cannot hold copyright, this is big. It means that AI cannot be members of the Writers Guild of America, which means that it cannot be a writer for a television network or studio. So, within Hollywood, at least, the prospect of AI taking over jobs from screenwriters is rather remote. Now, Hollywood is more unionized than just about every other creative industry in the United States, compared with, say, software development, which is a creative industry. Only a writer is allowed to do the job of writing. It cannot be done by the water boy or lead gaffer, for instance, no matter how good they are at writing. This agreement effectively plugs the holes that the writers were worried about while still permitting them to use AI as assistance, which they surely will anyway, because it's useful. I have a friend who's a screenwriter who has been using ChatGPT since the moment it came out and has gotten good at doing that to his benefit and calls it a writer's room in a box. A writer's room, of course, is a room full of writers that you would get on a TV show or movie where they bounce ideas off each other and get creative. And a writer operates best in Hollywood in that kind of environment and not typically by themselves the whole time. And having AI to act in that functionality means that a writer is never lacking for that writer's room companionship, generating the best kind of prompts that facilitate that kind of interaction is an art form that my friend has mastered and is 
using to great effect in coming up with uh, independent ideas and storylines. We've explored what artificial intelligence means for creativity on this show quite a bit, and it certainly comes in for a lot of attention in my book. And the new large language models are shockingly good at creative writing. Yes, you can, and many people have, point to ways in which it is deficient compared to the best creative writers, but it is better than the average ones, and it's the average ones that need to look for their backs. I've got an anecdote in a related field that illustrates that. This show goes out for transcription, as you know, if you've been to the links in the show notes, and AI transcriptions are not great. They're amazingly good compared to what they used to be and compared to what one might expect of them. But they're not as good as what I want. And they're not as good as the best human transcribers. And the transcriber for this show, Laurie, does a perfect job. There is virtually nothing I end up changing in her transcripts. She is far, far better than the AI and every other human transcriber. But all the other human transcribers that I have hired, including ones whose expense would make you think that they belonged in the superior category, were not only not as good as Laurie, but not as good as the AI. So that brings transcription choice down for me to the choice between Laurie or give it to an AI and tweak it myself afterwards. This is good news for Laurie. It is bad news for all the other transcribers who are not in her class, at least from my perspective and my sample size of one. So let's start generalizing this some more. This is where I'm aware that I'm not an economist and uh, don't want to be one, um, but I do feel the lack of good economic advice most keenly and for me, my experience with The Economist has been mixed at best. It seems that when it comes to fundamental things, they're in disagreement. It's as though one had asked physicists for advice and discovered that they were in disagreement about the direction gravity operates. If you're an economist and you want to disabuse me of this notion and point out where I've made a mistake, then feel free to contact me and enlighten me. I will just point out that the presence on their payroll of three Nobel Prize-winning economists didn't stop long-term capital management from going bankrupt and nearly taking down the global financial system in 1997. So there's not as much certainty in the field of economics as I would like to have, but then that's true of many fields, futurism among them. So what I'll try to do in this podcast is, more than anything else, raise useful questions. Now, a lot of this conversation about AI and jobs was amplified or traces its origin to a 2013 paper by Carl Benedict Fry and Michael Osborne at the Oxford Martin Institute for the Future of Employment, which studied hundreds of job classifications and measured them against scales of how repetitive was the work, in other words, how likely was it to be automated. Their conclusion, which was broadcast around the world in huge letters, was, quote, according to our estimate, 
47% of total U.S. employment is in the high-risk category, meaning that associated occupations are potentially automatable over some unspecified number of years, perhaps a decade or two. End quote. And this was turned into headlines that echoed around the world, saying researchers say that half of all U.S. jobs are going to be taken over by AI. Now, the amount of work that went into this study is undeniable. What's also undeniable is the amount of controversy and attacks it has attracted. One thing I seem to have observed in the conclusions is that it decides that if someone is performing physical work that is repetitive, that that is itself automatable. And so point-of-sale clerks come in for a high probability of automation. Yet when I walk around the mall and look at point-of-sale clerks, they're doing things like folding t-shirts, putting clothes back on hangers and other type of jobs like putting merchandise in bags that in that store is nowhere close to being automatable, that we have not got robots to do anything like that, and the state-of-the-art in t-shirt folding for robots was, I believe, the $16,000 Laundroid robot, which would take about a minute to do it per shirt. On the other hand, they consider that CEOs have a low, like single digits, probability of being automated. And shortly after they came out with this study, Forbes published something saying that up to 20% of CEOs' jobs could be automated. And similarly, a lot of creative work is considered to be beyond automation, and yet we have seen that large language models bore a hole in that argument. So I think that there are a lot of jobs that were previously considered safe and were even rated as safe according to this paper's methodology that may no longer be in that category. In terms of creatives, I have said before that I consider people in certain functions of composing music and drawing art to be in the high-risk category. Now, the argument that comes up whenever you talk about AI creating art or music is that people go to a concert to listen to, say, Beethoven, and they're not listening just to the sound, but they're listening through the lens, to mix modalities in the metaphor, of knowing what was happening in Beethoven's life, interpreting the struggle and the emotion that was going on in the man at the time that he was creating works like the Ninth Symphony. And that's not subject to attack by artificial intelligence, of course. We don't have artificial intelligence that we would relate to in anything like that way yet. But think about the presence of incidental music on television shows, for instance, where you hear something accompanying the hero and heroine dashing down the street to get away from the villain. That kind of music is something that needs to exist, has been created by people hitherto, because that was the only way of doing it. And yet, we don't care about the life of the person that's creating that. Sorry. But we don't even know who did that. No one goes and looks that up in the credits beforehand, then goes and looks them for them online and conducts studies of that so that they can relate to that person. 
that is a ludicrous suggestion. And likewise, there is incidental artwork. Pick up a weekly news magazine, something glossy, and look at the articles in there, and you'll find that there's art that is likely uncredited. Maybe it's in the margin. Maybe it's somewhere in the end matter. But it's there to illustrate something with a relatively short lifespan. Again, you don't know who that artist is. You're not going to go to the gallery to experience their output. It's just something you consume and then move on. That also can, as we know, be created by AI. And that's why I say that those two jobs of creatives are in mortal danger at the moment. But before folks at the higher end of the economic scale get too complacent, a piece of news dating back to 2014, a Hong Kong venture capital fund called Deep Knowledge appointed an algorithm, a program called Vital, to its board of directors, where it receives a vote on all investments. You can read about that in an article by Rob Weil in Business Insider, May 13th, 2014, titled A Venture Capital Firm Just Named an Algorithm to Its Board of Directors. Here's what it actually does. And I think that a large proportion, and I suspect most of the functions of someone in the C-suite or the board of directors could be taken over by AI now or very shortly. And that even if that function was performed poorly relative to its human counterpart, that could be offset by the speed with which it could do it and its ability to operate 24-7 and communicate with the other board members and C-suite members if they were also AIs in real time. So what does this mean for our experience of jobs and ability to retain those. I get asked this all the time. Show up for somewhere to do a talk and the first thing out of someone's mouth, whether it's got anything to do with the talk or not, is what is AI going to do with jobs? And that is uh, just something that impacts on a fundamental, deep level. And one of the things I do to bring it home for people on a personal level when they're worried about AI being able to do their job better than them is to say, do you like ice cream? Most people, that's a safe bet. And they say, well, suppose I've got an ice cream machine over here that I've invented off camera, don't know what it would actually look like, that does a better job of eating ice cream than you. you know, no drips, fewer slurps, less noisy, no crumbs from the cone. Are you going to give up ice cream? And of course, the point is that if you enjoy doing something, then the fact that a machine can do it better doesn't need to stop you from doing that. Of course, very few people get paid for eating ice cream. There are a few that do. They may not enjoy doing it as much as you think they would. But that now precipitates the whole conversation about the necessity for working, to be able to make an income to live on. We could, of course, hope that automation could eliminate all the jobs that we don't want to do. So what we're left with is things that we enjoy doing. Problem with that is that jobs that we don't want to do, many of those are nasty manual labor. Some of them are rewarding manual labor, like massage therapist. Some of them are unhealthy, like truck driver. And truck drivers also may enjoy doing their work. And some are in between, like flight attendant. Very hard to imagine that job being automated anytime soon. 
So now we've got to talk about what will we do for the people who lose their jobs to automation? And of course, one of the arguments is they will find newer jobs and better jobs, jobs that haven't been created yet. And this has always been the case and the usual epithet that's tried it out to describe the people who are against that idea is Luddites. And by and large, they're correct. Some jobs have been eliminated, but the people who did them can go on to other jobs that are generally more rewarding. If we look at the comparison of jobs that are performed now to what there was 150 years ago, virtually everyone then was a farmer, out of necessity, not choice. Then those jobs started migrating to factories and then to desk work. At each stage, getting easier, less unhealthy, less risky, and more highly compensated. So there's good reason to think that will be the case this time too. But as investment advisors like to say, past history is no guarantee of future performance. At some point, do not we run out of runway to land our employable abilities on? Will the truck drivers who are replaced by autonomous vehicles take jobs as large language model prompt engineers? Now, there are some people who espouse a utopian view who say that it won't matter whether people have a job or not because the dividend from AI and other exponential technology will shower us with so much money that no one will need to work and they will have enough money for whatever they need. The problem I have with that is that they don't say how the money is going to get to those people. I believe they are correct that there will be enough money. But at the moment, capital return on investment in high technology goes to the owners of those companies, the investors, the executives, and maybe a few venture capitalists and even fewer founders of startups. How is the money going to get to the little guy who is not in any of those categories? It seems that the utopian's position is that if a robot takes your job, then you move on to do something else that's better. But also the utopian's position that the robots will be doing those jobs as well. The analogy I have for the way that capital moves here is that rain falls in the mountains and the rivers coming down from the mountains swell and you've got all of this extra water going down the river and the utopians say this will make the desert green. Well, it would if it got there, but the river as it is flows out to the sea and more water is just going to go down that river to the sea with the rest of it. So I ask the utopians, how is the river going to be diverted to irrigate the desert? And the response is... And perhaps because these people are at heart mostly free market little L libertarians, they just can't bring themselves to utter the T word, taxes. How else are you going to get money from the dividend of the return on investment in high technology to the people in the low income classes? Value-added tax, income tax, capital gains tax, transfer tax, inheritance tax, key word in all of those is tax. Philanthropy is not enough. The United States is, I submit, proof. It's got plenty of dollars in the hands of private individuals to fund as much philanthropy as would make any level of difference you can imagine. And it's got people in desperate need of that philanthropy. 
So there is opportunity and there's means, but there is evidently not the motive because the problem has not been solved. And I think that a lot of companies and individuals, when faced with the philosophy of go ahead and donate, it will make you feel better and it will raise the population out of the, the mire, look at each other and say, you first. Because it's not just a competitive disadvantage to be the one that gives up significant wealth. I'm not knocking the obvious amount of philanthropy that we know of going on from organizations, large businesses, foundations, and prominent individuals such as Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. But in general, to give a significant amount would impose a competitive disadvantage on a business that did that. So this is why taxes solve that problem, because then you know that everyone else is at the same disadvantage, provided those taxes are fairly distributed, and that's another problem. And it's why taxes do have to be collected at gunpoint, if necessary, because you need to know that the other guy didn't get out of his just by meeting the revenuers at the gate with a sawn-off shotgun. The general approach to solving this problem that has been embraced by a great many technocrats who might hail from opposite ends of the left-right political spectrum, but are united on the idea that artificial intelligence poses an existential threat to the job market. And their solution is something called universal basic income that we would provide. And again, the mechanism where that money comes from, left as an exercise to the reader, but enough money to everyone, no questions asked, that it would finance their basic needs. Food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In places that have at least flirted with experiments in that regard, the results, to the best of my knowledge, have been rather positive. But this meets an opposition, particularly among the puritanical elements of the United States, that it would remove from people the need to work, and that they would just vegetate and watch television or something. If removing the need to work is a bad thing to do to someone, then I guess we should confiscate most of the wealth of Jeff Bezos. Clearly the man and others of similar wealth structure have no incentive to perform a day's honest work. Oh, well, maybe the argument is that Jeff started out with very little and learned hard work in order to make that amount of money, and so he's going to keep doing that out of habit, if nothing else. Well, then what about the ones that inherited it? Maybe we should confiscate most of the wealth of Paris Hilton. I think this argument still doesn't apply. And again, my limited knowledge of the limited amount of experimentation that's been done with UBI is that people who are given that kind of assistance do not go and squander it. But okay, this still raises the question of where are we going to get the money from? A tax on CPUs? Uh, CPUs are scattered across the landscape like confetti. You're going to tax the ones in flashlights, doorknobs, toasters. What about GPUs or neuromorphic chips? How are you going to decide the basis on which you will tax each one how much? Is it going to be by the number of cycles per instruction or what of power? Are you going to tax them at import? 
sale, integration, or use in some device, or is it going to be a tax on their operation, like how many cycles they run? Okay, but that's like an engineer's level of objections. Let's say you resolve all these questions and come up with something that, even though it is perforce Byzantine and controversial, so is income tax, and we have that anyway. Are you still taxing the right place anyway if you are taxing chips, hardware in some form? Has this served the goal of transferring money from people who are making huge amounts from the deployment of AI to people who have been displaced and disadvantaged by AI? Okay, so I'm straying a bit from asking questions into rendering opinions and conducting advocacy. I'll plead host's privilege there. And someone with some credentials and publications in the matter of where wealth redistribution intersects with technology is welcome to contact me about coming on the show. What about the consequences of capital continuing to accrete in the places where it already exists in large quantities thanks to the dividend from high technology? Well, we have seen uh, increasing inequity in the form of the ratio of CEO pay to their worker pay going up from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 300 to 1 around now. And in terms of the real income levels of the upper income echelons, the 1% versus the middle class, if we look over the last 50 years, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities shows that income in all bands tracked roughly together equally until 1975, and then the 95th percentile takes off while the others remain relatively flat. So that seems to me to be pretty good evidence that technology has increased productivity, but the dividends from those productivity gains have accrued disproportionately. And, well, as to advocacy, this show is not about being a champion for the economically downtrodden. There are lots of people, maybe not enough, but lots of people doing that better than I can. But I'm about artificial intelligence, and if I see AI making inequity worse, then it will decrease human happiness instead of what I want, and that upsets me. There are some people in this world who say that it's a zero-sum game, and they don't care who suffers or how many suffer, as long as AI benefits them, because in order for them to get ahead, someone's got to fall behind. And I'll just say that if anyone with that thinking is listening to this podcast, go and find another one. I don't want you in my audience. History, in my understanding, shows that reaching higher and higher levels of inequality breeds revolution. There was a paper by Robert McCulloch of Imperial College London that says, quote, more people are found to have a preference for revolt when inequality in their nation is high. A one standard deviation increase in the Gini coefficient explains up to 38% of the standard deviation in revolutionary support, end quote. And by revolution, think French Revolution, guillotines, heads rolling in the streets, and so forth. The Gini coefficient is roughly the ratio of high income levels to low income levels in a country. The higher that ratio, then the higher the amount of inequity in wealth in that country. Well, in the US, income inequality is greater now than it was in 1774. Let the significance of that date sink in. So 
I could say to the wealth class, hand over the money peacefully or wait for the pitchforks to arrive. But actually, one of you has already beaten me to it. Nick Hanauer, in 2014, penned an article in Politico titled, The Pitchforks Are Coming for Us Plutocrats. And Nick is someone who is undeniably in the upper, at least 0.1%, private plane, yacht, all that sort of thing, and who realizes that that amount of inequality carries consequences for the people inhabiting that class. And he said, quote, I have a message for my fellow filthy rich, for all of us who live in our gated bubble worlds. Wake up, people. It won't last. Now, let me be clear before I end up on the wrong kind of watch list, not that that is my primary concern. I'm not advocating for revolt, not calling for revolt. I am, I don't have that kind of power influence. I'm not delusional. But in any case, I am simply pointing out what others have said about the direction that history is going and where we are likely to end up. If I want to make a comparison that really is favorable to me, I will say that this is like what Harry Seldon was telling the empire in Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Of course, they weren't kind to Harry Seldon, so uh, swings and roundabouts. Last week, I suggested that we need some kind of global organization, which I called IAIA, International Artificial Intelligence Agency, because I like those initials. Try and uh, hashtag those for me, huh? And that that would be one of the best ways of addressing existential threat, or at this end of the scale, the threat to jobs from AI. Maybe something like that is already in the works, because European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen proposed to create a global framework for artificial intelligence with partner countries, tech companies, and independent experts during her address at the European Parliament on September 12th. She said, quote, I believe Europe, together with partners, should lead the way on a new global framework for AI built on three pillars, guardrails, governance, and guiding innovation, end quote. She added that the EU's AI Act can be used as a blueprint for other countries working on devising policies for AI regulation. And as far as I can tell, many of them are already doing just that. There was nothing in what she said about where funding for this might come from. There's a link to that in the show notes. And perhaps my final couple of macroeconomic notes that I've got sitting in front of me here. As those better jobs are created, do they necessarily become open to fewer people? One of the comparisons I've read is with the WPP advertising agency versus Google and Facebook in terms of the number of dollars of revenue generated per employee. To generate $10 million in revenue, Google and Facebook require fewer than 10 employees each, whereas WPP needs more than 100 to do the same, or did in the statistics that I read, which were somewhere around 2015. Of course, maybe the hope and the argument is that AI will multiply the size of markets by a factor of 10, or whatever it will be in this case. And again, that may be how it's worked out in the past, but will it be what happens this time? Another comparison that's often made is with horses. 
There was a lot of argument that horses were guaranteed full employment back around the turn of the last century. And there were even predictions about how the streets of New York would rise to 12 feet high in dung if the projections of the number of horses that would be plying the streets held true. Of course, we know what happened a few years later. And along with that, the U.S. horse population fell from 21.5 million in 1900 to 3 million in 1960. They may in general be better jobs for horses, but they are fewer jobs. And are people in this respect going to be more like horses? I do wonder, to stray off the jobs and economic axis for a moment, whether our enjoyment of life and vocations is a constant, whether that will be improved by holding better jobs. Or will we still end up in the same level of dissatisfaction that we are now? My kind of uh, anecdote for this is imagining a conversation between a teenager and her father some X number of years hence saying, how come I get stuck exploring the asteroid belt on spring break while Susie gets to terraform Venus? If we accumulate greater levels of privilege and wealth and yet are psychologically blind to that happening, what have we gained? Obviously, that discussion is itself privileged because it's ignoring the tangible benefit there would be in jobs that were not unhealthy or shortened lifespans becoming available. Just to give uh, another data point on this question of the psychology with which we experience our circumstances, a study by researchers at the Free University of Berlin to determine why unemployment is in general bad for people, they examined the change in self-reported life satisfaction among Germans who moved from the phase of being unemployed to being retired. So nothing was changing except the label under which they were living. And the authors observed that, quote, entering retirement brings about a change in the social category, but does not change anything else in the lives of the long-term unemployed, end quote. And they found that the shift from being unemployed to being retired brings about immediate and dramatic increase in happiness, even when controlling for other factors. And this demonstrates, quote, how strongly long-term unemployed people benefit from the change of their social category while retiring and the associated relief from not having to meet the social norm of being employed anymore, end quote. So quite apart from the financial necessity of being employed, we have a psychological necessity to address as well. And that paper is identified in the show transcript. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, you may have heard me say on this show before, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had AI that, instead of helping telemarketers, helped us respond to or handle telemarketers by answering the phone when they call and engaging them in a pointless discussion which would eventually perhaps even cause the whole profession of scam artists and telemarketing to wither on the vine. Guess what? Someone's done it! A Monrovia, California man named Roger Anderson has created an AI-powered chatbot that he calls Jolly Roger that you can hand a conversation with a telemarketer off to with a few clicks. Oh, just a moment, please. I'll get my partner. That's who you need to be speaking to. 
and it then engages them in a pointless conversation that will never commit any kind of money and is running on large language models with voice input and output. Uh, sample exchange was a telemarketer saying, thank you for calling card services, although he was the one doing the calling. Chatbot, uh, there are different personalities you can pick, replies, huh? And Kevin, the telemarketer, says, what do you think? How much is owed on your credit cards collectively? Chatbot answers, I've been having trouble with my television remote. It's a bit cranky. Can you help me figure out how to change the channel to watch my favorite show? And it keeps on and on in the same vein. It is perforce a little clunky to do the handoff. You've got to tap some buttons and do some call forwarding. Doesn't get any easier than that, unfortunately. But my goodness, is that ever worth it? Way to go, Roger. You're a hero. You can look for that on the web at jollyrogertelephone.com where you can also hear some sample conversations that have been recorded where after 15 minutes or so, the telemarketer and scammer eventually gets fed up, swears, and hangs up. Score one for the little guy. Next week, I've got a lot to say that I've been saving up about the impact of large language models on education and what teachers, educational institutions, should be doing. So I'm going to... Let some of that out next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's AI. A-N-D-Y-O-U dot net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.